0: In the name of Allah, the Most Gracious, ever Merciful. Welcome to Da'aflam Shows Monday's edition with myself, Imran Akram, and Talib Mann. Mm-hmm. Assalamu alaikum. And uh, uh, you can call us on 020 787 and you can also tweet us on at Voice of Islam UK. And uh, many congratulations to the uh, newly built uh, uh, modern, uh, you know, mosque and very
1: beautiful. What's your sentiments and thoughts? Well, I was lucky enough to uh, be present during the inauguration and uh, I, I should actually make a bit of a typo correction because the mosque um, of I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know the story. There was a fire in the administrative buildings back in 2015 Right uh, at the front of the main mosque uh, which totally in, in, engulfed the, the administration buildings. So subsequently they had to be demolished uh, and rebuilt. So it's the inauguration Really of the mosque complex, right? Right. right? Um, but yeah, it was a it's an amazing affair. Uh, His Holiness uh, was able to inaugurate the Battle for Two complex completely, and uh, we, as being uh, here to see it all, uh, were very privileged indeed. You know, we had it's. It was also, uh, I suppose, quite. You know, the stars meeting, really. All the stars were aligning because not only was it the inauguration... Of the battle for Two complex, it also was the uh, annual peace conference. Absolutely. So yeah, two, two, yeah, kind of like two stones or two <laughs> birds with one stone, really.
0: True, and you know, uh, especially as you mentioned uh, about uh, the situation, you know, mm-hmm. how we can escalate discussion between uh, Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. and uh, Hazur also mentioned that you know, Islam does not um, said that uh, you can uh, does not only emphasize that you should help the. Uh, oppressor it also emphasized that you shall. Help the uh, perpetrator, mm-hmm. and in that mean it, it means it to stop the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that was a very uh, eye-opening point for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we'll f- go out for the uh, topic, and in the first hour we'll um, talk about domestic violence and st- stop violence and shatter uh, shatter the silence. And in the second hour we will be discussing about carriers. How can you choose your car- uh, carriers, and what are the uh, you know. Uh, How can you decide uh, to which carrier you want to go? So without further ado, um, if we talk about the domestic violence in the Holy Quran, um, Allah the Almighty says, Our Lord grant us uh, of our spouses and children the delight of our eyes and make each of us a leader of the righteousness. Now, domestic violence and abuse against women is a crime that even during the biggest pandemic the world has faced. In constantly is constantly on rise. And according to uh, CSEW, 6.9 percent of women experience domestic abuse in a year. It's a huge huge number. Uh, uh, ending March 2022, which equates to uh, to an estimate 1.7 million women. Now stay with us to find out um, uh, what we can do to best help and support victims of domestic abuse on the 10th anniversary of hashtag UKSayNoMore. If we if we talk about you know um domestic violence and abuse against the uh women it's a serious and widespread issue all mm. around the world and it affects women you know from all ages and races and socioeconomic background. If you can elaborate on the point um the point of um violence and uh, abuse against women.
1: Mm. Well, I mean in terms of uh violence and abuse it's not just only um Physical violence mm-hmm. you know that it could be verbal violence, right. uh, gaslighting all these things can happen, and obviously it 's not just I suppose the actual act of the abuse but the you know the effect of that abuse can be long standing uh, the ramifications of that abuse when it happens um, may not even uh, manifest itself straight away. I mean if we're talking about physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Imran. Yes, right. you know, you'll have the you know the the bruising, uh you know the broken bones that to to heal back, but there are wounds which are so deep uh which may never heal back. And if you think about it, the psychological effect of that say for instance, it's happening within a household. Mm-hmm. Uh maybe between the parents mm-hmm. for instance. Uh And you have children within that house. And the children are are obviously party to this in the sense that they must, even if they don't witness it, they can hear it. They can hear it, yes. And, you know, one uh, can only, you know, just hazard a guess at what damage, psychological damage and trauma that that in itself uh, is causing to those children. And who knows? You know, you get, I mean, I think it is actually uh, studies have been made into this that, the psychological trauma uh, for children of domestic violence and abuse may result in a cyclical or a cycle of this as well. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, they've seen how, it's manifested itself in their parents they themselves then manifest the same behavior mm-hmm. when they themselves have a family oh. uh, especially if they haven't had any counseling so you know it is quite quite serious i mean when we talk about violence and abuse against women you know it's been far too long impunity silence and uh, yeah there's a stigma uh, regarding this have allowed that violence against women uh, to escalate to you know, pandemic mm-hmm. proportions. Now, on average, two women a week are killed by their current wow. or former partner in the UK. Whilst a staggering one in three uh, women have experienced physical violence in their lifetime, uh, this is uh, you know a, an issue of global proportions. Mm-hmm. Really, not just here in the UK. Uh, people are exposed to violence on a daily basis, whether it's through media, personal relationships, or simply observed during daily activities. The few types of violence that are most prominent in today's society are physical, psychological, emotional, and obviously this domestic violence. Now, domestic violence is one of the most problematic and dangerous forms of violence that exists due to the detrimental effects it has on the individual, individuals directly involved. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned, children who witness these acts of violence and are, I suppose, the indirect effect. Now, Abu Huraira, a companion of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, the most perfect of believers in the matter of faith is he whose behavior is best, and the best of you are those who behave best towards their wives. So, obviously, you know, this this... Instruction, you should say, Mm -hmm. from the Holy Prophet. Yeah, it goes to mention. It's it's not anyone else, not your, uh, your, your kind of like aunts, mothers, whatever. But it is actually about your wives.
2: Right,
1: right. right? So it goes to show the importance that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, placed upon uh, the role of the wife. You know, and the treatment of your wife. So you know. That's 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 I think something which is I suppose lost in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we have that uh, I suppose that guiding light in 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 such of the holy prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. And his um, yeah, just the way that he conducted himself throughout his life. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have that as one. I suppose example as well and obviously you know the the main example that we have are you know there are numerous verses in the holy quran that you know state you know the importance of the female in the marriage the the, the mother the uh the wife so i'm not saying that you don't have that in uh, christian literature but you do but it's whether you actually uh, maintain those principles really yeah, so we have uh, uh, our first guest uh, of this hour, um, uh, Lindsay um, Dear
0: Love, and uh, she's a, a global director of uh, operation at No More Foundation. Um, welcome, Lindsay, to the draft Time show. Peace be upon you.
3: Thank you very much, and thanks so much for inviting us into this call. It's um, To speak to your listeners, it's really interesting. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So, Lindsay, while talking about uh, the abuse, um, uh, especially the uh, domestic abuse uh, against the um, a woman and a recent statistic recorded a five year surge in domestic abuse and violence. Why do you think that is?
3: I mean, I think in all instances, statistics are brilliant because they do, you know, show the number of reported cases of domestic abuse into the police. But I think for all the people working within domestic abuse services, we'd all say that actually there's a constant need for support and that domestic abuse continues to be a massive issue and um, impacts many many women men and their children um, and so actually i think you know it, it continues to be really high level but obviously you know we have to also recognise that we've had um, we had the global pandemic which had a huge impact on families and bringing them um, you know, people were locked in their homes, unable to mm-hmm. access support or flee. And then following the pandemic, we've had the global um, economic crisis or cost of living crisis, which has a huge impact on on families. And for women who are experiencing domestic abuse, often um, they're experiencing economic abuse. And so, you know, we see a report, an increase in, in women looking for ways and means to, to move to a safe space where they have economic freedom um, and obviously where they're safe.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good afternoon, Lindsay. I mean, do you think that div- uh, domestic violence and abuse victims are being neglected in the in our system here in the UK?
3: I mean, one, you know, looking from a global perspective, um, we see lots of different types of support systems that are in place, and in many instances, we'll speak to countries who look at the UK as a sort of a blueprint for a good approach, for a whole systems approach, meaning that you know we have a police force that receives training around domestic abuse. We have a domestic abuse bill, which obviously is is in place. We have a domestic abuse commissioner. So there are many areas that we do have very good responses. But actually, in all instances, we can always all do better. Um, we know, for example, that the court system and especially around child contact continues to be a really difficult and often um Challenging um, environment for anyone who's experienced domestic abuse, and and trying to ensure that the children remain safe after um, fleeing that relationship is often incredibly difficult because of the way our our court system works. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd like to say that in in comparison to other parts of the world, we are doing really great in the UK, but there's always space for growth and improvement. And from a victim's point of view, I think we can't you know can't ignore the fact that if you are wanting to leave um, an inclusive relationship, your first point of call is often safe accommodation. And if we can't offer that because of over, you know, an increased demand or it being under-resourced, then we do have, and it will continue to be a challenging environment.
1: Mm. I mean, the thing is, though, Lindsay, I I, I take your point that we have the structures in place, but do those structures, I mean, are they working currently? Say, for instance, you know, uh, if a case actually gets to court it's it's stymied currently because there's such a delay in the court system um whether it comes to uh criminal convictions of domestic uh violence uh domestic abuse and violence cases so you know in that in the meantime what actually happens to those victims then because i suppose you know are they in this this uh, like limbo
3: I mean, I, I suppose from a practical point of view, if someone's experiencing domestic abuse, their first priority is often to keep and make sure they are safe along with their children. And refuge accommodation is often that first port of call. We know that when someone can access refuge accommodation, you know, regardless of where they are across the country, that can be instrumental in that pathway to recovery and keeping someone safe.
2: Mm-hmm. But we
3: also know that those services aren't funded um, enough, that there's always an increase, you know, we need more services that can provide um, more services for people, but also they need to be more sustainably, fu- sustainable funding for those services. If you're thinking that, you know, for example, that the, the justice system would keep somebody safe, to some degree it would. And yes, you're right, there are always delays with the court system. But what we'd say is, as sort of advocates in this instance, that getting yourself to a place of safety a woman's refuge or working alongside a domestic abuse service is often that first step in ensuring Mm -hmm. that all of these other options can be put in place in a way that works best for the individual person.
0: Mm -hmm. So, have you witnessed a change in DVA um, cases uh, since the pandemic?
3: I mean, I know that from from reports that have come out of um, London-based charity Hestia that there was a huge increase in demand on services and the people entering those services often were experiencing the impact of the cost of living crisis so they were having less disposable income or less income at all in order to flee and to make themselves safe so there's obviously that's the impact the other thing i think that we were sort of getting better at recognizing is the impact of economic abuse and being able to actually name it and see how it's had interwoven into how domestic abuse is perpetrated by those that choose to abuse so in some ways the more we learn across the sector across other businesses across other sectors about economic abuse the more better at identifying it so i would see that that's a little bit of a change in some degree But, you know, one thing I can say is that when we speak to people from across the world and in different countries, and different settings, domestic abuse often follows very similar patterns, although it is often very compounded by culture, region, community, um, that all make it, you know, distinctively different. And so in many ways, domestic abuse continues to be about power and control, um, and the abusive partner continuing to find means and ways to exert that. So in some ways, we can see how technology can be an avenue for um, accessing support and um, finding information about how you can leave an abusive relationship but then the inverse of that is that we can also see how technology can be used in a negative way of, of being able to monitor and surveil and increase isolation mm-hmm. on a victim so there are there are unique pieces that are coming forward and more of that is about us learning to listen better to those that are enduring domestic abuse and listening and picking up from their individual experiences. Mm.
1: So, you know, with the foundation, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how or you know, have those who have suffered uh, domestic violence and abuse, I mean, how do you help those uh, victims?
3: I mean, for us, for um, a global foundation, we have a global directory of services. So, no matter where you are in the world, and if you're needing to access specialist support around domestic or sexual violence, you can go to the um, no more global directory pop in the country that you're in or the country interested in, and a list of services will come up. So I think that was one of our first aspects is creating a, a tool that can be used by friends, family members, and colleagues, or by someone who's enduring abuse to access that special support. linking two people together is is really key. Um, and so then the other thing is that we do a lot of work around prevention, mm-hmm. and part of that work is really, opening up the conversation to men and boys and making sure that they're part of the prevention dialogue and recognizing that only together that we're going to be able to end domestic abuse by really thinking about the way we talk about domestic abuse, um, that we keep it as a, a, a healthy relationships, we keep it as a topic that is quite fluid and open um, in any home, in any business, in any community setting. Because in truth, you know, we have to be able to name these things and we can't name them unless we're talking about them in a in a sort of good and healthy environment. So we do a lot of work around healthy relationships, um, in particular creating toolkits for parents about how to talk to their young people about healthy relationships,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, as well as, you know, creating different um, opportunities for conversations. Like at the moment, we've got a whole dialogue series Um which you can, you can join in at any point. It's on no more dot org. Talking to different people around the world about their perceptions and understandings about the preventing of domestic abuse, but also about the wider topics around gender based violence.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, Lindsay, uh, lots of people uh, sometimes they does not report um, domestic uh, abuse because they are too scared to, you know, they um, have uh, feelings that they can broke their family up. What advice would you give to them?
3: I think the, you know, the making that first phone call mm-hmm. completely, understandably, is one of the most scariest moments, um, and you have to do it in a moment where you feel safest and more comfortable. Mm-hmm. But what I think I would probably suggest is that speaking to a specialist domestic abuse service, uh, you know, you have um, the independent domestic violence advocates, you have local community women's groups that are available, or other type of community settings where you can speak to a specialist domestic violence worker
4: Mm. could
3: be the could be a really good first step that person would work with you to find out what's best for you and work at a pace that's suitable for you so if you're at immediate risk of harm we would always suggest calling 999 and the police coming in and providing that immediate response but if you're thinking about what you can do if you're concerned about your relationship then i would always suggest Speaking to somebody who is a specialist in domestic abuse prevention, or even downloading the Bright Sky app, which is available in the UK, which provides some unique tools and referencing about what what a healthy relationship looks like. Perhaps answer some of your questions around Mm -hmm. what happens if you do choose to leave, and Mm -hmm. what options are available for you to leave. You know, one of the things that we say from all the time that I've ever worked um, with women who've experienced domestic abuse is that the right time to leave. Is when that when when you're ready and when you feel safest and mm-hmm. um, Obviously sometimes that that opportunity is taken from you because there's a risk of physical harm And you have to in you know step out immediately. There's a police intervention for example But do do speak to people as much as possible to get the information you need to feel ready to leave and you know there are incredible services out there women's refuges are are really great places. There's this camaraderie of support from other women who are in those services. There's trained staff who are dedicated to ensuring that you and your children are safe and have access to things like, you know, schooling, um, you know, moving on to a suitable accommodation. They'll be able to support you through accessing, um, gaining economic in- independence. So there's lots of different options that are attached within a or and community domestic abuse service.
2: Mm-hmm. So they- Uh,
0: Lindsay, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, the people uh, who don't know how to use technology, they don't know how to use mobile Mm and stuff like that, there's a language barrier as well. So, is there any help for them as well? Uh, I mean, how can we help them?
3: There are. um, I think there are um, specialist services which offer um, Mm -hmm. their support in a number of different languages. Um, And I think you can find those services by, you know, speaking to a local community woman centre. In some instances, you may be able to speak to your school, um, the, the, the staff members at your local school, who'll be able to put you in contact with your community um, service. And in most areas, there's a number of people who, within those services, that speak many different languages. But also, all services have access to translators if you feel comfortable using a translation service. Our um, our global directory, for example, you can access it in a number of different languages if you are able to go online. Um, Bright Sky, for example, the app is available in Urdu, um, Punjabi, um, Polish, as mm-hmm. well as English. So that's available in a number of different languages. Um, but there are definitely specialist services out there that, would, where their staff members will speak the language in which you choose to chat to them in.
0: Right. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for uh, coming on the Draft Time sure. show. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk with you.
3: Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much and thanks okay. for your time.
0: You. you can call us on 020 86 87 78 and 78 and you can also tweet us uh, at Voice of Islam. So we're talking about the domestic violence against the women. If we look historically, uh, women have uh, have been always, uh, you know, labeled as vulnerable and as victims. So in old times, women were not treated, uh, you know, humanly, but rather as objects who could be kicked, beaten, used and abused and even killed at a, at a man's will with uh, no consequences whatsoever. Before the advent of Islam, the, opposition state, the position and status and condition of women in the world was uh, equal to that of slaves and cattle with no rights. And they had no real status in the society, not being respected as wife, mother or daughter. During the 6th century, with the advent of Islam, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, the condition of women changed dramatically with the advent of Islam. Now, almost overnight, women were uh, endowed with equal rights and put on the same level with men. Society was um, society was given clear guidance by the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him for the treatment of women in their roles as a daughter, a wife and a mother. God Almighty uh, states uh, in the Holy Quran and makes it clear that he created men and women as equal beings. So uh, Allah Ta'ala says in chapter uh, 39 verse 7, He has created you from a single being, then of the same kind, then of the same kind, made its mate holy quran ensures a woman's equality on the spiritual intellectual social and economical level now women's rights were safeguarded by the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him as he himself carried out the commandments of allah ta'ala a god almighty and treated women with great honor kindness and dignity is not it is amazing uh, to find that Uh, 1400 years ago, Muslim women have been enjoying rights for which Western women are still struggling.
1: Mm, Yeah, very much so, Imran. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the... There is a misconception in Western society as regards to the um, treatment of women in Islam. Uh, And I suppose it's understandable uh, given the media coverage and the media bias really towards it. And, you know, even when I suppose in the UK, we have leaders uh, in in society, you know, former prime ministers who make reference to uh, Islamic or Muslim women Mm -hmm. as letterboxes, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, there is that denigration of of women. Uh, But unfortunately, I mean, you know, this is a misconception. Now how many times have we heard that you know these muslim women are mm-hmm. being oppressed and subjugated by their husbands you know islam teaches that the relationship between a husband and wife should be based on peace kindness love comfort and protection some men thinking that they have unbridled authority as the head of the household uh, are engaged in domestic violence and cruelty to children yet mm-hmm. this kind of behavior is strictly prohibited in islam Islam does not permit the abuse of women in any way, shape or form. The promised Messiah, may Allah be pleased with him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, taught that men should not be harsh or ill-tempered with their wives. He said, Once I raised my voice against my wife and I immediately refrained from uttering any hurtful and harsh word. I recited a lot of istighfar, seeking forgiveness from Allah, and offered voluntary prayers with great ferventness and gave some charity. So you see, even Mm -hmm. this, um, you know, narration from uh, the life of the promised Messiah, may Allah be pleased with him, showed that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not uncommon, you know, for anger to take hold of you. Right. 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 And when that happens, you need to get, uh, you know, obviously you know we we say things we do things in anger but they can't be justified mm-hmm. yeah even for someone like himself the mm-hmm. promised messiah but he was able to control himself castigate himself ask for forgiveness from god almighty and then you know started uh, to give uh, charity right yeah. um so yeah these things are i suppose the rules that we and I suppose even in western society uh modern western society mm-hmm. you know women's rights are equal to that of men's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's whether you maintain those uh, rules and laws within your own household i mean you know i'll say you know we can see say for instance if in afghanistan mm-hmm. currently the regime there who are in control um are you know unfortunately the bad side or the, the 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 you know the bad face the, the of of islam mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they're stopping you know the females going to university right, going right. to school right mm-hmm. and so that is a i suppose a you know, a restriction of their god given rights mm-hmm. and so we know that in islam you are supposed to look at both males and females And it says in the Holy Quran that we are equals.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I just would like to quote some of the verses of the Holy Quran here with regards to the uh, women and how Muslims should uh, treat uh, their wives and uh, women in general. So Allah the Almighty uh, said in the Holy Quran and exhort uh, exhort, uh, with them in kindness. And if you dislike them, i.e. dislike uh, your wife for some reason, for whatever reason, it may be that you dis, uh, dislike a thing wherein Allah has placed much good. So even if you dislike your wife, Allah, Ta'ala, Allah God Almighty says that do not harm them in any way. Then Allah the Almighty states repeatedly in the Holy Quran uh, to show love, kindness, and uh, warmth that they should not be harm their wives even after divorce. So Allah Ta'ala has even forbidden us to you know. Uh, to take uh, to even forbidden us to call each other by bad names and to humiliate two wives mm-hmm. and in generally after a divorce you know I've seen many cases that after a divorce ex-husband you know somehow they uh, abuse their wives so Allah Ta'ala is saying that God Almighty is saying that even after divorce you're not allowed to call uh, their bad names and if you have given them a mountains of money you're not allowed to take them back so i 'm not i 'm not sure that why people you know blame Islam that mm-hmm. Islam is somehow um, uh, somehow promote uh, god forbid um, violence against women rather
1: in my opinion, it is one 's individual act uh, yeah, it's who the should practice i mean yeah. you have the rules and regulations there in the holy Quran. It's whether you choose to follow them okay. but I think we 've got our next guest yes uh, we have over a second guest over this hour,
0: so we have patrick Ryan, CEO of um Hi, Hestia. Um, peace be upon you, uh, Patrick, and welcome to the From Show.
5: Thank you very much. Uh,
0: so, Patrick, we are discussing about um, uh, violence against the woman. Um, please let us about uh, let us know uh, about uh, Hestia and your work with victims and survivors survivors of domestic violence and abuse. Of course.
5: So, so the first thing to say is that Hestia is a charity. We we were started a little over fifty years ago, Um, and we support people who are vulnerable or in crisis. Um, And this includes, importantly, for your discussion, it includes supporting victims and survivors of domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. We're the largest provider of refugees or or what might be known as safe houses in London. Um, And last year, we supported nearly. 4,000 women, men, and children, both in refuges, safe houses, um, and through other community based support.
2: Right. As
5: well as providing those services to victims and survivors, we also work with communities and businesses to enable and support them to support their employees uh, and also to play a role in addressing domestic abuse, domestic violence in the community. And some examples of things we've done around that is we've developed what we know as safe spaces.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: That's a partnership between Hestia and a group of leading banks and pharmacies. Um, and there are now well over 7,000 safe spaces across the UK. And anyone who needs support, anyone who is a victim of domestic abuse, can go to one of those safe spaces and get supported. Um, and secondly, what we also do is we provide support for businesses now over 200, so reaching over half a million staff across the UK and beyond, mm-hmm. in order to put in place a response to domestic abuse for their employees, so to support employees who might be affected themselves by domestic abuse. So that's a little bit about us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Uh, good afternoon, Patrick. So. Your organisation, I mean, have you uh, seen a surge in domestic violence and abuse cases uh, since, you know, COVID, you know, since the pandemic?
5: Um, I mean, sadly, we know that the home was not a safe place for many people Mm
2: -hmm. during the
5: pandemic. Um, And now the cost of living crisis is also having a negative impact. I think it's really important to say that, you know, financial stress isn't the cause of domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we know that in times of economic hardship, abuse can and does escalate both in terms of severity and frequency. Mm. And in recent months, we we've seen a higher volume of calls to our refuge referral line. That's where somebody can call if they are if they're seeking support and if they're looking for a refuge bed. And also visits to our online safe spaces, um, which complements our physical safe spaces. I said we have over 7,000 physical safe spaces in banks and pharmacies. But for our online safe spaces, which is hosted by about 70 businesses across the UK, we've had a million and a half visits since the launch under lockdown.
1: Wow. So that is an increase. I mean, I suppose your point being, Patrick, that factors like uh, the cost of living crisis uh, or economic hardship and, uh, pa- and the pandemic are more like catalysts. They exacerbate the situation. They don't actually, they, they aren't the root cause of domestic violence because that must or that may well be already a part of that household, but they just seem to exacerbate that situation.
5: I, I think that that's completely right. Um, we we know that at times of financial hardship, it is exacerbated both in terms of frequency and severity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, is not. You're completely right. It is not the root cause of domestic abuse and violence.
4: All right.
0: So, Patrick, uh, what are some of the most common reasons uh, for reluctancy in reporting the crime? I mean, what stops uh, victims from coming forward?
5: Um. I think, essentially, what victims tell us, survivors tell us, is that the, their, their feeling and their experience is that they won't be taken seriously,
2: mm-hmm.
5: that action won't be taken, and it won't lead to any arrest or prosecution, um, and I, I'm afraid the statistics bear those experiences out. Um, you know, being in an abusive relationship is can be really traumatic, fear, is constant. The victims often very isolated, um, as the perpetrator will, not always, but typically, stop them from seeing family and friends.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: O- often, people are o- also survivors or victims are robbed of any financial independence. Um, making it really difficult to seek support, Um, which is why Safe Spaces is such an important initiative because it allows very easy access right on the high street. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what I would say to anyone who might be experiencing domestic abuse, I think this is a really important message, is that help is available for you. Uh, What we have heard from survivors, five out of six have told us, but they didn't actually know that there was help out there. Oh. And so a really important message to say that help is available and you you will be believed. Um, and a- any any victim who might be listening to your programme, you know, go to one of our safe spaces in a high-speed bank or pharmacy where mm-hmm. you can simply call a helpline or a family or friend you know, to find your nearest safe space. Visit Hestia's website or just Google Safe Spaces if it's safe for you to do that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, Patrick, do you think there is still this stigma attached to um, domestic violence and abuse? You know, you as a victim. I mean, I suppose one of the um, rationales is that, well, or maybe uh, a scenario within the thought process of victim is like, how could I have let it? so far why didn't I see it before why didn't I stop it before so do you think that that stigma of well maybe it's something that I I could have done um, you know has, has, has gone now or is it still there
5: I, I, I think it's two things one I think it is still there mm-hmm. you know clearly and this may seem like a very obvious point to make But the the impact of domestic abuse and its slow erosion of somebody's self-esteem and Mm. self-confidence can can be a long time, um, can take a long time to come back from. I mean, I think what we also know is that typically there may be 30 incidents before a victim would leave a perpetrator. And often there are several attempts made to leave before somebody leaves finally and successfully. So I think yes, there there, there is still there is still stigma in, in the way that you describe. Um, but but I think we need to place that alongside the impact, the mm-hmm. that repeated incidents of domestic abuse and violence, uh, coercion and control restricting of somebody's choices and ability to decide for themselves have on self-esteem
0: so patrick what can we as a society uh, do to help and what support is available for victims and uh, survivors
5: um i think it's a really good question and perhaps the most important thing that we as individuals can do is if somebody tells you that they are experiencing domestic abuse, mm-hmm. is to believe them. Right. And to be open to hearing what they are telling you. Um, I, I think that experience of being believed on revealing something which will have, as I've, I've just said, undermined somebody's self-esteem can be hugely important and really significant in somebody's journey. I think far too often, unfortunately, people are dismissed or not believed.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And that can prevent them from getting you know, vital support. I think what we can also do is, if anybody was to, to come forward and tell you that they are suffering domestic abuse, is let them know about safe spaces in the high street banks and pharmacies. Mm-hmm. They go there, they can access helplines and support without the fear of being overheard or discovered. Mm. Could even perhaps look offer to look up one of the closest safe spaces um, for somebody in order to give them more information. Mm. Um, and I, I think separately, but also importantly, I think as a, as a society, if we want to really respond and end domestic abuse, then we we must support specialist agencies. You know, refugees have been around for decades, but they've never really had the investment of resources, the security of funding to do the important work that's required to support survivors to recover from trauma and to have a life beyond crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, they they are they are Cinderella services, and certainly at Hestia. Do mm-hmm. we strongly believe, you know, that survivors deserve better. So I think there's a, a personal challenge to believe, not to be a bystander, um, not to see that it's just a private matter which I must do nothing about. Actually, we all are responsible not to bystand when we see domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think then more widely as a as a society, there's something about how we how we invest in and support specialist, specialist agencies to support the recovery of victims and survivors.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Patrick, for coming on the Draft Time Show and give us the inside view of uh, uh, the issue. And uh, thank you so much. Um, have a nice day. Thank you. So you can call us on 20 878 and you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. As Patrick uh, said that, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have seen the surge in especially the um, COVID-19 pandemic. And just to give you the statistics, an estimated 1.6 million women aged 7, 16 to 74 years have experienced domestic abuse in the last year ending in March 2019 and most countries have gone into a lockdown state during this uh, covid-19 um, covid-19 uh, outbreak and due to this many victims of domestic violence and abuse who are locked down with their abusers are left invisible to the naked eye.
1: Mm, I think, Imran, you know, the biggest stat here is Mm -hmm. Refuge, which is UK's largest domestic abuse charity, reports a 700% increase in calls to its helpline in a single day. 700%, my God. You know, while a separate helpline for perpetrators of domestic abuse seeking help to change their behaviour received 25% sent more calls Mm -hmm. uh, after the start of the lockdown. Now, former Prime Minister Theresa May has urged the government to deeply consider the devastating impact of the lockdown on domestic abuse and mental health. Victims are suffering both physically and mentally uh, in homes that are not places of safety. So I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that Patrick said that just caught my attention was that it's the way that uh, these these charities are working as well, because you can imagine, Imran, yeah, mm-hmm. that uh, it's the scenario that Patrick's painted that if you are suffering from domestic abuse, it's not a, a kind of like an instantaneous thing. Mm-hmm. It's a a period of time that that abuse has happened, right, right over right. a course of you know maybe years, uh, and it's got to the point where actually physical violence is the end result, mm-hmm. right. So, you know, you can understand if that were happening to you, I was like thinking if that were happening to me, how would I be feeling? I'd just lose all confidence, Mm -hmm. right? You'd be like in fear that you're going to be discovered all the time. So, um, you know, to all our listeners out there, you know, if you know someone who may be exhibiting, you know, uh, signs of Mm -hmm. undergoing uh, psychological trauma uh, or, you know, domestic violence and abuse. Right. It's very easy. I mean, the idea or this this, this um, plan that, that hessia have in conjunction with pharmacies and high street banks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think you're just walking into a bank,
2: mm-hmm. right? right?
1: I'm just getting some money out. Mm-hmm. So that gives you that excuse if you're a victim mm-hmm. to actually reach out for help. Right. You know, you're going to the pharmacy. I'm just getting some cold and flu. Or mm-hmm. well, I'm just getting some, I don't know, whatever, medicine, right? right? right. But actually, I can reach out. And I think... You know, it's that that we have to um, reach out because, you know, uh, the other thing that I was thinking was like how how devastating it must be for them. I mean, the thing with Islam, and we view everything through the prism of Islam here at The Voice of Islam, that, you know, the second tenet, the second priority after worshipping God Almighty is to love his creation. Right, absolutely. And his creation is man or woman right absolutely. so to treat them as you would want to be treated yourself so you know, imagine just you know for all our listeners out there even if you've not succumbed or faced domestic uh, violence and abuse just imagine yourself absolutely right under fear so to talk more
0: about on, on this topic we have our third guest of this hour dr adrian barnett and uh, She's a reader in law, uh, Brunel University Law School. Uh, welcome, uh, Adrien, to the Draft Time shows. Um, and uh, uh,
6: Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on, uh, on your show.
0: Thank you. So, Adrien, we're talking about um, domestic violence against the woman. So, is there, any, uh, is there a law against domestic violence and abuse? Um,
6: well, there are a number of laws. There's no actual offence called domestic abuse or mm-hmm. domestic violence. Um, there are a number of existing offences under the criminal law that uh, somebody could be charged with, you know, which range from murder to GBH, uh, which is uh, uh, grievous bodily harm, ABH, actual bodily harm, common assault. Um, but there is an offence uh, which came onto the statute books in 2015 in the Serious Crimes Act um, under section 76 of coercive and controlling behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really significant because we were the first country to criminalize coercive and controlling behavior, yeah. which is um, the most common form of domestic abuse and, and, and what the previous speaker was very helpfully talking about. Um, you, you know, it's that uh, sort of re- re- repetitive, uh, continuous um, control, um, threats, intimidation, isolation, which carries on relentlessly over a period of time and wears the victim down and traps them in the the relationship. And that has been a criminal uh, offence since uh, 2015.
1: So, uh, good afternoon, Dr. Adrian. I mean, why is domestic violence mostly or most commonly described as an invisible knife crime?
6: Um, Yeah, I I, I think that refers to... uh, uh, some reports that were saying that um, uh, victims of domestic abuse can be invisible victims of knife crime. And what they're referring to there is the very high rate of femicide. Um, that is the very high rate um, of um, murders of women um, uh, as a result of by um, uh, intimate partners. Um, you know, for example, the femicide census, census um, of uh, for the years 2010-year period from 2009 to 2018, mm-hmm. found that at least 1,425 women were killed by men in the UK in that period. Wow! That translates to a man um, killing a woman every three days.
2: That's terrible.
6: Um, and a woman being killed by a male a partner or ex-partner every four days. Um, uh, so th- this is a um, you you know what illustrates why there is uh, a cause for for wider public concern Mm -hmm. um it in in some ways you know femicides are the the you know the epitome of the state failing to um uh respect or protect or fulfill women's human rights
2: Mm
6: -hmm. if it ends in in in, um homicide Mm -hmm. yeah um so so that you know that that's that's a serious problem um for the Femicide Census for 2020 found 110 women killed by men in that one year alone yeah. in 2020. Um, and it might also be interesting to look at, um, uh, some of you may have heard of Jane Monkton smith that's Professor Jane Monkton smith um, who has formulated the eight-stage pattern mm-hmm. of, of domestic homicides, where it starts off with a history of stalking or abuse, um, and then escalates over time um, the trigger point is the woman leaving the relationship then a change escalates to the um, abuser trying to reestablish control then starts uh, there's a change in thinking where they're thinking of planning the homicide and it ends in the homicide and it's really important to understand that pattern to be able to, to, to prevent it early on
1: mm-hmm. I suppose in, in a sense uh, Doctor Adrian, then if this goes through, it's like the pre uh, yeah, it's premeditated murder, really. In that in that essence,
6: that, it is. It's 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 a it, it's that ultimate control. If I mm. can't have you, nobody else can.
1: Can have you, oh. mm-hmm.
0: uh, Doctor? What needs to be done to prevent such you know devastating action and uh, consequences? And how can we aim to eradicate DVA? Uh
6: gosh uh so so that's a tall tall order um i think we need to we need to hold perpetrators accountable Mm -hmm. so we've got to take the focus off the victim we've got to stop making um you know um we've got to challenge stereotypes of victims and what we think are typical victim behaviors we've got to stop victim blaming you know stop making assumptions based on stereotypes Perhaps about race and gender, um, and really look at the history of the relationship before we start making, um, you know, assumptions. Um, the, you know, domestic violence and abuse is a massive burden on the public purse. So there, there is a, 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 you know, more investment is needed. Um, in, in to stop support and help victims to to recover. Um, and to really invest in trauma-informed services, and police—you know—something needs to be done. I'm afraid to say about overhauling the police. We've <laughs> all, you know, police training is 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 one thing and needs to include information and learning from the femicide uh, census to re- improve their response. Right. Ensure, you know, that the seriousness of threats of violence and killing are recognised
2: mm-hmm.
6: um, and taken seriously. Um, and you know, I think the police—we've seen the police force needs to look at itself as well. So, mm-hmm. You know, far too many police officers themselves being investigated for domestic abuse
1: at the moment. Yeah, that's an unfortunate. Uh, well, I suppose, yeah, fact of the Met police currently. I mean, what would your advice be to the silent sufferers of domestic violence and abuse? Because obviously, there's—we uh, were speaking to Patrick earlier on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the questions I put to him was, is there still this stigma of reporting uh, that you are a victim of domestic violence and abuse? So what would your advice be to these silent sufferers?
6: Um, I I think for many women, there there are many, many reasons why they don't report. There is still a stigma attached. But I think the problem is that advising women to report it can itself be, be problematic when if they do report it, the responses at the moment aren't aren't brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I think what we really need to understand is that uh, victims are the experts in their own lives. They will know when it's safe to report. You know what we need to understand is that leaving a violent uh, an abuser is the most dangerous time mm-hmm. uh, for a woman. So I think my advice wouldn't necessarily be to the silent sufferers of domestic abuse but to people trying to help them uh, and um, to understand that um, there are lots of sources of support out there. And that is what, one thing I would say for victims. But um, for people trying to support them, uh, telling the, uh, or encouraging the victim to leave may not be the best thing to do. It may put them at greater risk. And what one needs to be there is find sources of support for them that can really be helpful for them. Be a listening ear. And when they do, need uh, to take and be non-judgmental, non-victim blaming. And when they do need to, to take action, be there and, and provide helpful, practical support.
1: Mm, yes, right. exactly. Well, Dr. Adrian Barnett, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking to you today on the Drive Time Show. Thank you once again for joining us this afternoon.
6: Well, thank you so much for having me on. Thank uh, you. Have a good day. Program. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. So
1: you can call us on 0208 or tweet us at voiceofislamuk. Uh, I suppose, you know, in conclusion regarding this, uh, mm-hmm. Imran, yeah? uh, Abu Huraira, who's a companion of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, related that uh, uh, the Holy Prophet did say, the most perfect of believers in the matter of faith is he who whose behavior is best, and the best of you are those who behave best towards their wives. So I quoted this already, mm-hmm. but it just seems that, you know, although... And there's a point that we brought up initially right. uh, uh the conversation at the beginning of this uh, topic regarding domestic violence and abuse is that actually in, normal, in Western society as well as in Islamic society, mm-hmm. the rules are there. Right. So all you have to do is abide by the rules, right? Absolutely. It's a very mm-hmm. simple thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you – okay, I can understand when you're in a relationship – and things happen in that relationship. There are ups and downs, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, emotionally. But at no one point would you want to actually—I I, can't—I can't see it myself. Mm-hmm. You know, end up it being in such a state in that relationship that you want to kill your partner.
0: Absolutely. Uh, in my humble opinion, there there can be you know lots of law regarding um, uh, domestic violence. But in my humble opinion if you somehow elevate the status of women and instill the respect of uh, women in the men's heart that's how you can eradicate the uh, domestic violence because there are lots of law because, because, but one can you know find the loopholes uh, in the law so that is why the, the main point i think which i want to mention is islam islam say that uh, paradise lies underneath your mother's feet mm-hmm. and th- that is why the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said that uh, best of you uh, are, are the one who uh, who is very good towards his wife mm-hmm. so it's, it is about elev- uh, elevating the status of women and it, it is about um, teaching that respect towards the woman mm-hmm. so laws are there that is good but I think and the respect and the status of women
1: should be raised. And mm-hmm. that is how we can rate it. And the thing is, with uh, domestic violence and abuse, it's a, it is a vicious cycle, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't just affect the victims physically, but it has that long-term mental uh, effect on their mental health. And this is why it's vital to seek and accept the help that is available for every victim of this. Uh, if you believe you or someone else is being abused, you can either call 999, uh, as a, as a lot of our guests have said, as your first point of contact, or the national Do- domestic abuse helpline, uh, it only, it all takes one step, and just to have that courage. If you are uh, a victim, you know you can see maybe that uh, a friend, a family member, an acquaintance is suffering hmm. from, or may be suffering from domestic violence and abuse, right. then you know you have to be there I think Dr. Adrian said as a support mm-hmm. for them mm-hmm. yeah but ultimately the decision is theirs and you can't force them but maybe you can give them the opportunity to make the right choice absolutely so uh, that's the end of the hour stay tuned we'll be
0: discussing in the next hour uh, about the carriers uh, make your dreams a reality so um, stay tuned and uh, here's O'Clock News
2: Allahu Akbar
1: listening to the voice of islam radio
0: in the name of allah the most gracious ever merciful assalamu alaikum peace be upon you and welcome to the daftam shows monday edition with myself imran akram and talib uh, so previously in the previous hour we have discussed uh, the domestic abuse and how can you know uh, report and how can and you eradicate dva in, the, in in this hour we'll be discussing about the careers and uh, make your Dreams are reality. And uh, you can call us on 020-86-87-7878 and you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So if you talk about if we talk about the career um, you know uh, as you are probably um, already aware this week, you know, from sixth to eleventh March 2020 um, uh, three. Marks the National Carriers uh, Week, and it is celebrated to promote the importance of good carrier education in schools and colleges. So, in accordance with the uh, National Carriers Week, we will be discuss the importance of good carriers education in schools and colleges. We'll also look at some of the um, emerging carriers uh, beneficial. Uh, for our youth in today's age. More importantly, we'll discuss about the teaching of the Holy Quran and the the teaching of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him.
2: Mm. I'll
1: hold my hand up, Imran. Mm -hmm. I didn't realise it was National Careers Week. Is it? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't realise it. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, when we're talking about careers now, that I personally uh, have seen, or I view that there's a change now in society that... uh, Part uh, partway has been instigated by so socia- well by technology now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right um it's not just the automation of manual labor right so say for instance uh let's give you an example uh amazon right mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. a delivery service a lot of their depots are automated now so you do have humans there they're working uh but uh, a lot of the functions there are automated right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yes in terms of manual labor there are are certain i suppose areas of industry which can be automated right. and made more efficient so that also then makes you think well what are humans going to do now right mm-hmm. what are the industries or what can we do right which will provide a or provide value mm-hmm. to not only ourselves but society as a whole and that's why i'm saying with technology now, that's, I suppose, given an extra opportunity or avenue. It's not just the, I suppose, the support services around technology, i.e., say, for instance, cloud building. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I still don't really understand what it means. Mm-hmm. But it's to me, it's like a massive files in the air, <laughs> which right. you can keep off-site. Right. So now, you know, you have huge sectors mm-hmm. uh, of technology um, you know organizations which are just dealing with this right mm-hmm. uh, management of memory management of data um, also things like influencers right, right. <laughs> so 10 years ago i you know would this be a valid mm-hmm. career absolutely. being an influencer mm-hmm. what do you think absolutely but
0: one one question which comes into my mind is that you know careers are related to your um, uh, your you know passion Mm-hmm. But how do you know that? Because sometimes you like like couple of things. Sometimes you like engineering as well. Because that that was happened with me as well. Uh, in the beginning, my teacher was uh, physics teacher was very good, so mm-hmm. I like physics. But in the last year, my physics teacher was not very good, so I like chemistry and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I was confused of, after my GCSE. Which you know, what is my passion? Which you know, uh, career should I follow? So I always struggle to find out about, you know, passion and... Uh, but don't
1: you think, you know, uh, you're talking about GCSE, right? So right. you're 15, 16. Right. I don't know. I mean, if I... That's almost, like, hold on, 40 years ago for me, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know what career I wanted to go into when I was just doing my O-levels, mm-hmm. right, my GCSEs. For me, it was just like I'm still at, you know, kind of like secondary school. Right. Uh, I'm just having a good time with my mates and whatever, Um, yeah, this is part and parcel of society, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to school. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really have a career path uh, or I didn't have a dream, let's say. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't people there, uh, out there who don't, at an early age, Mm -hmm. right, have this um, drive, this ambition, right, to do a certain thing in their lives, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it be astronaut, whether it be doctor, whether it be... um, olympic cyclist Mm -hmm. whatever it may be right Mm -hmm. Uh, and they can be that way motivated at a very early age maybe Mm -hmm. it was something like you know they've seen something on tv Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right or they have maybe a family member who does a certain sport and Mm -hmm. they themselves want to replicate it because you'll find i think that most career choices are based on seeing someone or getting that input from a certain Mm -hmm. person, Mm -hmm. which motivates your interest. I mean, you yourself just said, you know, your GCSE um, physics teacher Mm -hmm. really motivated you. Mm -hmm. And you thought, right, I'm going to be going into the field of physics, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I'm going to be following in the uh, footsteps of, you know, our greatest scientists here in in the Jamaat, right, Right. in the community. And coming up with a theory Mm -hmm. regarding... You know, uh, what was it regarding the composition of the atom, right? Yes, yes, yes. So, yes, we don't know. I mean, what I'm saying is, right now, there is that um, dynamic situation whereby, yes, okay, is it really, I mean, I'm I mostly going uh, to get all the producers kind of <laughs> uh, texting us now saying, you're going off key. <laughs> And you're throwing a spanner in the works of the script. But really, there has to be a question posed now. That traditional line of, yes, get your education, Mm -hmm. and then your career will be extension of your education. Is that necessarily the best way now? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously,
0: you mentioned that, you know, uh, today, in today's uh, world, in, in day and age, the fields are very vast, you know, you can become a YouTuber, you can become mm-hmm. a, a motivational speaker, you can become, you know, anything you want. But with that, it also, you know, it also confuses the young mind because sometimes you feel like, you know, you can become a YouTuber. But ending up, you know, uh, not doing your studies and end
1: up, you're not. Exactly. So that brings me or brings us back, actually, (laughs) online to the script or to what the producers wanted to talk about. Now, the importance of career education and education as such. Now, you might have met someone who is changing jobs constantly, trying out Mm. different things to figure out what works for them. Or many times we see someone from a different educational background working in a completely different field later on in their lives. So when one changes uh, his or her field of studies, one loses the precious amount of time and effort and even money, especially nowadays, uh, that you spent on acquiring that skill set that you are no longer using. And sometimes we're still uh, in our mid-age or middle-age still figuring out what works best for us. Mm -hmm. So you know, in the Holy Quran it says... And that man will have nothing but what he strives for. Now, this is chapter 53, verse 40. Now, luckily, uh, the educators uh, have become aware of this problem. And they have developed what is now known as career education. It helps students choose the best career suited for their natural skills. Uh, Career education uh, covers many aspects such as developing The knowledge and skills of students and helping students develop a positive attitude towards education and work. Now, in essence, when a student joins uh, career education courses, they can obtain broad and crucial information about the different kinds of maybe uh, university degrees. Uh, maybe more vocational careers uh, on those on the topics that they are interested in. Right. Uh, there are also pro- uh, programs under career education which can help students understand what their own intrinsic strengths and weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. Moreover, career education classes also provide real-world experience in essence when we are aware of our limitations and potentials, it becomes easier for us to make the right decision. Because, for instance, Mm -hmm. I don't really know anything about biology and stuff like that. So, you know, if my career's teacher at the time said, right, okay, go into being a researcher in, you know, in biomed, biomed, why? Yeah, maybe I could do it, but Mm -hmm. I would have no interest in it. So Mm -hmm. I suppose nowadays it's more... Bespoke, Mm -hmm. tailor-made. So each person is an individual, and you, I suppose, as a career uh, advice educator, are looking. That and it's much more specialized nowadays.
0: Absolutely. I mean, uh, especially the children who are just going to their schools to universities. They should, you know, um, have this kind of basic uh, knowledge about uh, career choosing and what they are going into. Because I was reading a stat. uh, that that shows uh, the research conducted by the uh, London School of Business and Finance just that um, 47% of UK employers would like a uh, would uh, like a chance in their uh, would, would like a change in their career uh, direction, and surprisingly, close to a third of workers are not sure when they will make a chance. So uh, that's a huge number, 47%. Yeah, it's like half, yeah.
1: right? So basically, what well, that's that's telling us mm-hmm. is that. Well, I'm not really happy with my job. (laughs) I want to change (laughs) it. Yeah, and I suppose that's what I'm saying nowadays because it's not as if the skill set really is, for instance, in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can understand. Let's look at engineering. Right. Yeah, some form of engineering, uh, electrical engineering. Per se, it will take you time to acquire the skill set to actually develop in that 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 field. Yes. So, if you were to, say, be five years down the line mm-hmm. and then decide to change, change. Yeah. then, okay, there are, I suppose, attributes, mm-hmm. right, which you can transfer to other jobs mm-hmm. because I'm sure I would uh, I would presume that being uh, a, you know, kind of yeah. a technical engineer, mm-hmm. you have to be very uh, close attention to detail. Right. So, there are certain other um, careers which would require that. Harder, yeah. But then, as, you know, you would be of the case like well maybe um i didn't get the correct advice mm-hmm. right right at the uh, the outset as to maybe what my career path um would be if i picked a certain topic to to specialize in right. so i think that is where uh it is essential to have a good uh, a good career advisor right right at that stage
0: So to talk more about on the uh, careers, we have our first guest of this hour, Josh Knight, and uh, um, he's a senior policy and research lead at Youth Employment UK. Uh, Welcome, Josh, to the Draftam show. Peace be upon you. Good
7: good evening. How are you? Uh,
0: Good. Um, So, Josh, uh, talking about the careers. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell us about the um, upcoming careers week and what is your organisation planning to do?
7: So this week really is all about us promoting our free and impartial online resources uh, that we have for all young people that they can access. Um, Last year these resources were accessed by over 2 million young people um, and they're resources which really encourage young people to explore their options and potential career pathways um, to engage with employer profiles um, and understand all the options that are available to them.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, good afternoon, Josh. Uh, Hi, yeah. So in terms of that, say, for instance, you know, to throw a clanger in the works. How has you know, COVID changed the, how we view um, potential career paths? Because in terms of more traditional going to the office nine to five, well, that's trashed it, really, because we found out during COVID and during lockdown, a lot of these things we could do from home.
7: I think that's a really interesting question Um, and actually it's it's got some implications for our young people Yeah, because we know that young people really value that sort of face-to-face experience of working with employers, of that continued development and training when they're in the workplace
2: Mm -hmm.
7: Um, and that can be sometimes quite difficult to replicate through online working environments. Um, And actually what we do know is that young people have had more chances or more time to really think about their different career options. Mm. Um, you know, being during lockdown and over COVID lots of us kind of reflected on where we were in our careers and for young people that made them more so think about the different career paths that they wanted to choose. Um, but what we do know from young people and speaking to young people is that they feel less able to make those choices. Um, they feel less confident about their choices when it comes to their careers. And they need more support in sort of being able to access different routes into work.
1: I mean, uh, Josh, what is lifelong learning then, and why is it important to young people? Is this uh, the case of you know you just you never stop learning? I mean, I, I'm 55, <laughs> and I've I still kind of like forget things <laughs> and relearn them anyway. So, in in terms of yeah you know, the youth or younger people. L- lifelong learning what what is that concept
7: i think lifelong learning is about recognising that it's going to be very unlikely that a young person goes into a career at 16 18 or 21 and will be in that career for the rest of their lives
4: mm-hmm. and
7: actually it's much more common now for all of us to have several careers over our working lives
2: mm-hmm.
7: and so we need to give young people the confidence to recognise their own employability skills but also those transferable skills too, um, and recognise that if they're making a choice at 18 or at 21 when they're leaving education, that's not going to be it forever. That there's going to be opportunities to get into jobs that didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago or don't exist in the moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, you know, just thinking about my own career. So I was a teacher for eight years before moving into policy, mm-hmm. and I'm likely to have another career in 10 years' time. Um, And actually, when young people recognise this, it can take a little bit of that pressure off what feels like really big decisions when you're quite young, when you're choosing what career path you want to go into. Um, And having that kind of wider perspective of lifelong learning, that a career is a journey, that work is a journey, I think can be quite sort of liberating for some young people Mm. to recognise.
1: I mean, just before you came on and joined us, uh, myself and Imran were having a conversation, and I was like saying, Basically, when I was 15, 16, doing my GCSEs, I didn't have a Scooby-Doo <laughs> as to what I wanted to do as a career. Uh, but ultimately, I was able to pick something and you know, have an ambition and a drive towards it in the end. And I can mm-hmm. see with this uh, this concept of lifelong learning, because, yeah, everyone's living longer now as well. So statistically, we will be doing – well, We will work, we should be working for longer periods, right, in our lifetime. But also with that, will come um, having different careers or different areas there where we will be um, working in. And I, I suppose that is the sea change now in terms of careers advice, that you are uh, not... And I don't like using that terminology of being stuck in something, but some people might feel that, that they're in a rut. And maybe that is actually the... Um, I, I suppose the negative side, right? When you think maybe you know you didn't qualify, or you, you've come out of education with not the best of uh, qualifications, and then mm-hmm. that's it for you. You there's you know you can't hope to amount to much else.
7: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a real challenge for those young people who leave education feeling like they don't have the qualifications to make those positive next steps.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, and I think that actually, as, a, as an education system, as a, as a career system, we need to equip young people with the confidence to mm. recognise their employability skills um, and the skills that they can offer to an employer um, so that they feel able to approach opportunities positively. Um, what we hear for our Youth Voice Census, which is our annual online survey, which was completed by 4,000 young people last year, mm-hmm. Is that they don't have the confidence to apply for jobs to write a CV um, to go to an interview and think they're going to do well Mm -hmm. and so particularly for those young people who feel like they haven't got the right qualifications we really need to do more in supporting them to feel confident um, to give them those skills to find opportunities and to find work.
0: Mm
7: So, Josh,
0: how do you help support uh, you know young people who are struggling to uh, figure out their career choices? Because I suppose uh, in today's days and days and age, there are vast variety of careers, you know, and which also some somehow you know confuses the young mind. So, tell us about uh, you know how you can uh, guide the students.
7: So yeah, that's, that's a really good question because you're right that there are so many sectors mm-hmm. and so many opportunities out there for young people. And often jobs and sectors that you won't have heard about, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, unless you've got a family member who works in a particular sector, um, it's quite often that you don't know all the jobs that are available. So one way that we do that is through our online resources on our website, we have careers guides Mm -hmm. that will talk through a range of different sectors, you know, engineering, hospitality, um, green jobs, for example, um, and really sort of break down what you can expect to do in these Mm -hmm. types of jobs, Mm -hmm. what different jobs are available in these sectors, um, the types of qualifications you might need to gain, the sort of experiences you can expect to have. Um, And another thing that's been really popular, particularly over kind of the past few years of lockdown and and the COVID-19 pandemic is our virtual work experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've had thousands of young people engage in our virtual work experience modules. On our website too, which is a a blend of kind of videos, but also an online course that enables young people to get a sense of what the world of work is like in different career sectors, Mm -hmm. so they can really make some informed choices about the types of things they might want to go and do when they leave education.
1: Right. Mm. So, Josh, I mean, how successful uh, has um, Youth UK, uh, sorry, Youth Employment UK, been in helping young students looking? Uh, for say, let's, for instance, say, uh, apprenticeships, jobs, universities, uh, or college courses. Do you think, uh, as, a, as a separate question, that it's, you know, almost, a, a, not a dying thing, but uh, a consideration, because there used to be, maybe up to about 15 years ago, a, a straight kind of line from O-levels, A-levels, and then university degree. Mm -hmm. That, I don't think, in my opinion, um, is the kind of, although that is the traditional line or, I suppose, step ladder uh, to education and then ultimately a job at the end of it. Maybe that's not the correct or maybe that isn't the wisest choice nowadays. I mean, what do you think?
7: Um, I I think it's a a choice for some people and for other people, it feels like less of a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, So not all young people will be able to kind of access that linear progression into work for lots of different reasons. You know, the circumstances that might be out of their control, um, perhaps because they didn't gain a qualification at a particular age and they have to do a reset. Um, or it might be because there's, you know, the course they want to go on isn't available locally to them. Um, so I think you're right in terms of that linear progression through GCSEs into work isn't as straightforward for all young people. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also about you know young people recognising that it doesn't always need to be that kind of linear progression that that we um, often think about because you know life can be difficult and complicated and take us in all sorts of ways. So really you know what we need to do, what we do here at Youth Employment UK, is make sure that young people are able to access a range of opportunities. And, you know, I think you asked how successful have we been. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we've been able to share over 1 million opportunities wow. um, with young people. And that's a range of apprenticeships, T-levels, work experience, jobs, volunteering opportunities. You know, all of these types of activities that help young people gain those employability skills and make positive next steps. Um, we've got over 26,000 young people who have completed our young professional course. Um, which is an online modular course that enables young people to really think carefully about their goals, their aims, their employability skills. Um, And we have a number of employers as well who are signed up to what's called a Good Youth Employment Charter, um, over 850 of them, who are signed up to a charter which sets out principles of Good Youth Employment. Um, And again, that's really helping young people who are in work make sure they're in good quality work, because that's just as important.
1: I mean, have you seen then that there has been a trend maybe towards um, more vocational um, ways and means of getting into the workplace now as opposed to that linear progression of getting a degree and then, you know, uh, starting a, you know, a kind of like a post postgrad um, position in a, in a company?
7: well i I think one of the challenges to that at the moment is that we're we're seeing vocational qualifications like btex um being defunded and and being removed from the offer Mm. um and that there is a move towards having a levels and t levels and apprenticeships as the three main go-to routes for young people Mm -hmm. um so a range of apprenticeships on offer which does offer that vocational route um a levels are, are really being, you know, are continuing to be very attractive and will continue to be funded. Um, but BTECs are, are kind of under threat a little bit by the new T level um, qualification, which was rolled out um, over the last two years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon, Josh. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. So you can call us
0: on 020 8687 7878, and you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So we're talking about education and career building. So it's no wonder that a great career starts with a great education. Therefore, it is all about being informed and having that knowledge of yourself and the opportunities to make that informed decision of your career. And we know that Islam plays a great emphasis on seeking knowledge. In Islam, seeking knowledge is considered as a religious duty and muslim are encouraged to seek knowledge in all fields including uh, religious studies sciences medicine um, mathematics philosophy uh, islamic and you know in the golden era of islam um, various kind of uh, scholars they have uh, they, bec- they they have uh, you know contributed in various fields of knowledge so for example i give you the go- examples of uh, uh, Al-Khwarizmi uh, who was an uh, est- astronomer and who's uh, you know credited with the uh, inventing algebra then uh, in the Islamic uh, golden era we have Ibn Sina uh, who is considered is one of the most significant contributor to the field of medicine and uh, for example Ibn Rushd uh, a Spanish Muslim philosopher and physician who made a significant contribution to the field of philosophy particularly in the areas of uh, metaphysics and ethics Then we have uh, Ibn al-Hassan, an Arab uh, mathematician and physicist who made significant contribution to the field of optics and uh, mathematics. So we have all of these uh, varieties of um, careers which Islam promotes. And not least, uh, we have Dr. Abdul Salam, Mm -hmm. who is a a Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, so uh, if there's a misconception, um, especially among the non-Muslim, that Islam, you know, in- encourages only to read the Holy Quran mm. and to just get the, uh, you know,
1: religious knowledge. Well, no, I mean, it uh, is it is a misconception, <laughs> and it's a very bad misconception. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, the thing is that we know that Islam places, as you've, you've mentioned, a great emphasis mm. on seeking knowledge. Uh, so much so that there's actually a verse in the Holy okay. Quran in the form of a prayer. And the translation of this is, "Oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge." Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't get any more matter of fact no. than that, right? right. Uh, so that was uh, from chapter twenty, verse one hundred and fifteen. You and know, we've actually discussed this this uh, actual prayer uh, many a time. So it it is incumbent, and it's it's duty of every Muslim man uh, or woman to acquire knowledge. Mm-hmm. And speaking uh, about the need for uh, Muslim children to be proud of their faith, uh, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza uh, Musra Ahmed, said, Do not ever hide your faith, but identify yourselves to the world as true Muslims. Mm-hmm. Be firm in your conviction that the Holy Quran is a complete book that not only commands Muslims to worship Allah, to pray five times daily, and to increase their spiritual knowledge, but it also gives worldly insights and guides mankind about general day to day issues so this is not just you know a great reminder for us as ahmadi Muslims, but really. It's uh, a footnote or a a kind of like a a pointer Mm -hmm. to the wider society. And what this pointer is is that our career uh, can be such that we can embrace only by being who we are. And if your career demands you to change or hide yourself and your identity, then it's probably not the best for you. So this is something that uh, our previous guest, Josh Knight, was saying Mm -hmm. is to, we're, we're not, I suppose like on a on a conveyor belt nowadays mm. right you know where each student is just right okay do you like sciences yeah then you're going to be going into this field do mm-hmm. you like humanities yeah well then you're going to be going to this field and then you're on this conveyor belt right right it doesn't happen that way mm. nowadays and i think it has to be i think a point i made earlier on more bespoke mm-hmm. more tailor-made to that individual and i know that in Actually, that might sound, well, that's a lot of work, right? Mm -hmm. To physically make a program for each individual. Because, you know what, you've got how many, I mean, even Josh and Al just said they they had over a million uh, take-up of an online course. Mm -hmm. So that must be a fraction Mm -hmm. of 16 to 18-year-olds in the UK. Okay, So if you imagine, okay, let's say, there's five million, then there's five million individual programs that you have to make. That's not exactly what I'm saying. You need to, I think, recognize that actually careers now have developed and the way that you kind of like push someone in the right or direct them. I shouldn't say push, direct them in the right way Mm -hmm. is to, instead of saying, right, okay, what do you like? It's not as easy as that. It's like, what are your skill sets? Right, right. Nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just what you like. It's what can you, can you see yourself in the future doing for a while. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think one of the messages that Josh was giving to our listeners out there uh, about the youth is that nothing is finite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nothing is written in stone. Right. So say, for instance, you do pick a career in banking, mm-hmm. let's say, right? That doesn't mean 40 years of your life is going to be spent in banking now. Right because most probably the bank is going to close down within (laughs) 10, right? Or be bought out by someone, other bank, and then your job is going to be made redundant. So you're going to have to find another career. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, it's that concept, and I think it is the idea of uh, learning, right, throughout your life, lifelong learning Mm -hmm. and being able to adapt. And I think that is uh, one of the qualities that we have to instill in our youth now, regarding careers is adaptability and not being cast in stone. Like, Mm -hmm. no, I only like this. Hey, maybe now you only like these things. You change. I remember as a kid, I never liked olives. (laughs) Right? Mm. Now as an adult, I quite like olives. You
0: develop your taste along the lines. Exactly. So
1: your your tastes change Mm -hmm. as as you mature. Mm -hmm. So obviously, all things change as you mature. Absolutely. Yeah but uh
0: there's another aspect of uh carrying uh car- choosing career that parents are choosing you know carrier for their a uh, young ones for example I met one father and he he has a a six year old son and he's he said uh, he want to make him a boxer and he's giving him a training a <laughs> 6, Six years year old yes right
1: well maybe so, okay
0: <laughs> so it was you know it is for me it's quite surprising that you know uh, the father you know uh, was said to be you know to you know follow your passion mm-hmm. but if the father is already you know saying to children become a, becoming a boxer and he's also training him mm-hmm. so that's i suppose is is another aspect of choosing career
1: Yeah, I suppose. But also, you don't want to fall into uh, the trap, right? Right. As a parent living your life through your kids. (laughs) Maybe, you know, your friend wanted to be a boxer, Mm -hmm. but was never good enough. Mm -hmm. So now he's like thinking, right, I wasn't good enough, but my son's going to be good enough. Right, Right. Okay. I mean, I used to like to play hockey. Mm-hmm. And I played field hockey to quite a, an okay level. I represented my county uh, when I was in, you know, sixteen, sixteen 16 to 18, mm-hmm. right? But I would never think to like, say, right, okay, I didn't make it to national level. I made it to county level.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm going to get my boys to, to, to play hockey <laughs> at yeah. national level. Right? Some, I'm not saying that it, that's that's the incorrect view mm-hmm. for that parent, but don't fall into the trap of, Living your dreams or um, overcoming your inadequacies, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Your own inadequacies and fulfilling your dreams through your children, right? right. Because you know what? They might have different dreams, absolutely. So, with that,
0: His Hos- Holiness Hazrat Mizza Masur Ahmed said that the Holy Quran is a spiritual treasure chest um, filled with unlimited knowledge. He said, The Quran throws light upon science, history, economics, and uh, so much more. It teaches us about uh, human rights, such as the rights of women, the rights of the poor and deprived, and the rights of the child. The Quran educates uh, us about family matters, about fulfilling the rights of uh, one another. In truth, all types of knowledge are continued uh, contained within the Holy Quran. So, with that, uh, we have our second guest, um, uh, David Morgan, uh, who is a chief executive of uh, Career Development Institute. Uh, welcome. Sorry. Uh, welcome to the DAFTOM show, uh, David.
8: Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thank awesome. you for asking me.
0: Thank you. So we're discussing about choosing the careers. Um, who does your organisation support uh, in terms of career pathways and opportunities?
8: So we're the Career Development Institute, the CDI. We're the professional body for career development across the UK uh, and we have international members. So the people we support really are... Uh, the careers advisors, careers team leaders uh, working in schools, colleges, universities, people working in the National Career Service supporting adults, as well as private practitioners who support individual clients. So uh, everyone who works uh, to support um, to support young people and adults. And so our job really is to make sure that they are qualified, they've got they've got the training, and they've got the resources they need to give uh, everybody, every client, the, the best support possible.
1: Mm. So that sounds quite multifaceted uh, in a sense David because you're yeah. not just looking at a certain demographic age-wise you're looking at the full demographic because I suppose with us living longer now um, you know you and the retirement age is pushed out to 68 now you could have yeah. several careers
8: yeah you, and you will yeah yeah a young person now will probably have Different estimates, but at least four, possibly eight, and possibly some estimates up to twelve careers. And if, if I, I'm, I'm in my fifties now, if I think back to to my career, I've I've changed not ra- completely radically, but I've I've changed direction a number of times. So there's no, it's very unlikely nowadays that a young person's going to have a straight line career where they go in in one direction. Um, and it's really important that that starts at a young age. So helping young people have the widest perspective of the roles available for them. Through yeah, people in midlife career changes either because of redundancy or because they want to do something different, and and you're right talking about you know, retirement, semi-retirement. We saw a lot of people in their 50s step out of the workplace uh, during the during and on the back of the, the COVID pandemic. Um, but retirement isn't necessarily ending your career because you, it's still a choice about what you do with your time. So you may go for part-time work, you may go for voluntary work. Um, so it's a career spans all of those all of those aspects so yes yeah, very broad
1: mm. and we forget i suppose um you know when we're talking about that demographic of the 50s who are going towards the end of their work well okay towards the latter stages of their working yeah. careers that once you actually uh, stop working full time what do you do with that time because we are animals of um of time management right mm. of of habit and, you know, if you work, you know, nine to five, I mean, I don't think that exists anymore, but in the old yeah. speak, the nine to five, you have that routine, right? Mm-hmm. You get up in the morning, you go to work, you know, you do, your, you, you do your your work, you come home. So once that's gone, it's like, what do you do or how do you use that time effectively?
8: Yeah, and that's why quite career, you know, career guidance, career support for uh, people in the latter parts of their careers is really important because yeah you, and, and it varies by the individual some people love that routine and really struggle when they retire because that mm-hmm. routine's gone the purpose is gone um so it's about refining that purpose and setting that purpose for yourself for other people it's a blessed relief they're really happy so they no <laughs> longer have to you know yeah. they're tied down by this and they've got these plans and these visions and um, I must admit, I'm more in the latter camp. My my wife gets very fed up with me coming. coming going, <laughs> oh, I've had a thought, what I'd like to do in return. but time. It, but it's important. It's important to think about it and plan for it. And it, and, it, and it's. I think where when you're earlier in your career, it's about how do I develop the skills mm-hmm. that will take me on a career path and what might that career path be? As, you, as you're as you in your later years, go, well, what skills have I developed and how could I use them and how could I apply them in a different way? So a lot of people go and work with charities because they've got They've either got time, which a charity needs, or they've got skills that a charity could benefit from. So it doesn't have to be paid work. But I, yeah, I think I think for a lot of people, it's, it, it seems very attractive to suddenly have all this free time. But actually putting some structure in it, even if it's you know part-time work one or two days a week or part-time volunteering, gives you that structure and gives you that time to then mm. uh, build other pieces. But yeah, talking to someone who's a careers professional can really help what's important to you in retirement, what's important to you to retain from your working life but what can you gain from being retired and and what might be the different ways that you could put that to use
1: so that brings me on to my next well you know the proper question which is you know how do you as an organization stay connected with schools colleges universities to actually support um you know the other end of the spectrum which are you know to support students with work experience uh internships, life work balance, job search, and courses?
8: Yeah, so there's there's a lot we need to do. So we work with, um, like I say, we work with the people who provide the the support to clients. So it's those careers advisors, careers leaders in schools, for example, who are trying to put those programs together and support them. So we do, uh, whenever we're developing anything, we always bring uh, the voices of uh, the practitioner in. Um, we have a range of communities, uh, online, um, mainly, but also some face-to-face communities. So we have a Facebook group with over 1300 career development professionals on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic opportunity for us to communicate with them, but also for them to share things with us. We really encourage kind of, um, you know, peer support. So there's lots of best practice sharing, lots of hints and tips. People always going on asking questions. There's one this week around, um, you know, what about, um, Oh, you know, employer professional indemnity mm-hmm. uh, for work placements. so if young people go into a workplace, are they insured? How do I get proof of that you know and so on so there's lots of there's lots of that sharing um, and anytime we're developing anything like we developed our strategy, we go out and we we find the voices of different and we try and pick people in. Different areas. It's not always always the same type of school or college. We're trying to get um, people who are more, you know, more advanced in their career support versus people who are struggling to provide the support they really like. So we're kind of hearing all the issues, all the barriers, and all the opportunities from different perspectives. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So, uh, David, uh, tell us about the career development uh, policy group.
8: Yes, yeah, so the Career Development Policy Group, uh, CDPG, is um, a group of nine organisations that work across career development, nine other key organisations. And we realised a few years ago that um, you know, we wanted to raise the profile of career development and, and really influence policy, and particularly in England, that the government invests more, because we see not just that um, you know, career development helps the individual, but if you take those millions of interactions that happen every year, it can actually have a bigger impact on the economy and society, you know just take levelling up and working with people in more disadvantaged areas. By working with people individually and helping them understand the the opportunities opportunities available um, and uh, the pathways to get there that they may not have realised, you can actually play a part in that broader social and economic issue. We can see what the skills are for the future. But we realised we were kind of having these conversations individually and our voices were kind of overlapping a little bit. So we we came together as nine organisations to try and work out some common policy uh views the big one is the career guidance guarantee which is our call that every citizen in england should have access to career support throughout their life as we were just mm-hmm. talking about from you know from educational way through to retirement so they can access the support so they can be you know as productive and have as positive a career as, as possible and there's some key things in that, um, having a career strategy. The, England doesn't have a career strategy at the moment. The last one expired in 2020. And that's about setting out how all the government activity works together, not just to make sure it's provided, but also this broader social and economic benefit. Tackling youth unemployment, which is running at around 14 percent compared to the national average being at around 3.7 mm-hmm. percent. So there's a real issue there. How do we tackle that? all the way through university and then um, professionalism is the last one of our one of our calls part of the guidance which is make sure people have access to a properly qualified which means degree or master's level qualified careers practitioner for that careers guidance bit that coaching bit which is really you know the kind of at the heart of, of good careers provision.
1: Mm. So you are saying your current uh, uh, career strategy uh, for CDI for your institute has lapsed in 2020. So, what is the new uh, strategy going forward? Uh, you yeah, know, from uh, 2021 yeah. to
8: 2025. Yeah. So, sorry, that the, the strategy I just talked about was the Department for Education, the government strategy. So, there's right. no government strategy overall for career development. There's lots of pieces of work they've done with the the skills bill and the schools bill, bill. Um, but we as an organisation developed in 2021 our 2025 strategy to set our direction. So what do we see as being important that we want to develop? Um, And it's really all about uh, increasing the impact that we have for our members, so really helping them deliver the best for their client and also uh, championing the, the sector as far as possible and the benefits it brings. And it's built on four pillars, really. One is, the first one is broadening the membership. So how we make sure we grow our membership, but do it in a way that really covers the whole of the sector. So we're really representing everyone who works across career development. Second is about strengthening standards, that that professionalism, uh, the ethics. We have a code of ethics, which is uh, a cornerstone of membership of the CDI. Mm -hmm. But that that needs to evolve and change. So things like artificial intelligence, you now have um, careers chat box, uh, and you can present yourself as an individual by uh, by having you know, an AI-created video. So what does that mean for ethical practice? Is it right? Do you need to mm. be transparent? The third is around influencing change. That's really about the policy piece, and that includes, for the first time, about raising our profile with the public far more, which is a big thing to do, but um, you know, things like uh, the conversation we're having now are fantastic ways of doing that. And the fourth is about a fair future, so how we work as an organisation uh, that's as fair as possible. So that's where we're developing or redeveloping our equity diversity and inclusion strategy, so we're doing a lot of work on that at the moment. How we work in a sustainable way, and how we work uh, in the most respectful way with all of our stakeholders, employees, suppliers, uh, and others we work with. So, yeah, four key pillars to help us uh, achieve that aim of having a greater impact.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because I feel like you know, there's an example uh, currently that I'm aware well that I, I'm aware of, and there's a disparity. Say, for instance. Uh, A-level um, at, at the, you know, kind of like yeah, going and choosing a degree and yeah. say for instance, and it's getting very, very, I suppose, type specific and what I'm talking about is the university's um, what is it? Enrollment, sorry, uh, admissions yeah. policies. Uh, so say for instance uh, if you're applying for a medical degree or a, you know, a degree in dentistry, Something as simple as the personal statement of the student has to be so type specific and compared to a personal statement to um, maybe study a you know a, a a less i wouldn't say a lesser degree but a different degree let's say a degree in geology or a degree in biology, they are worlds apart, and um from this example that i I'm kind of aware of the careers advisor uh, at that school wasn't aware that you know there had to be a different strategy regarding the personal statements
8: yeah uh, actually funny enough i'm talking to you today from the UCAS's um teachers and advisors conference where they're talking a lot about admissions <laughs> policies and yeah. uh, and uh, personal statements and think uh, and you're right and and there'll always be gaps in some gaps in knowledge but um i think they're there's a lot of work going on and it's still going on and they're talking about it here today at the conference about you're know, getting this greater parity. But what, what you're finding is there are there are areas of very intense competition. So mm. things like medical degrees are very, very competitive and you've got to be, you know, kind of top end of grades to to have a good chance of the best schools. But there are you know there are a range of universities that offer offer courses and sometimes people need to look at what you know what those other options are for the the top universities if you like the Russell group the oxbridges mm-hmm. they're the ones that people naturally think of but there are advantages to going to some of the other universities that are different you know so they may not have that name that cachet but they have you know different support services or different um, uh, you know the social life is different or the different aspects you can bring to it of course you've got the other part as well which is it's not always a degree so you can get uh, a lot of professional jobs now using uh, the apprenticeship route from mm. you know level two apprenticeships all the way up to degree apprenticeships so you can be a lawyer you can be an accountant i think you can go into you know you can get quite advanced medical de- um, degrees for apprenticeship now mm. so there are more options now and we we find ourselves in a odd place sometimes where there's a lot of organizations advocating for you know wider access to higher education and, and more people from you know more diverse backgrounds getting into higher education getting degrees which we support whilst also championing that apprenticeships are an equally valid route uh and you know and it's all about well well what's important to you what's the way you learn what's the path you have but i i, I do understand your point that you know the um yeah un- understanding those nuances and those differences with different kind of degrees is is really important and that's where mm-hmm. Yeah, talking to the careers advisor or people like UCAS have got a ton of information on their website now that can really help.
1: Mm, Mm. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you uh, this afternoon, David. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show.
8: Thanks very much. Thank Mm, you. Have
1: a good day.
0: So um, if we're talking about the careers and, uh, you know, future jobs are one of the uh, main criteria through somebody, you know, choose his career. So Monster, which is a job uh, research uh, search engine, has published a list of uh, top 10 jobs in demand for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. So they have uh, gathered their data from the innovation company uh, Nest has report, uh, which reveals uh, what the job market will look like in 2030. So here's what experts think are uh, the best 10 best career to go into. So uh, on number one, um, they say teaching the future work for, um, workforce will need people to teach subjects l- such as english languages and uh, history and philosophy to prepare candidates from the future jobs in the uh, nest has report teachers and other public sector job um uh, farewell against the threat of automation and robots can't you know uh, get their uh, pincer around in, uh, interpersonal skills just, just yet mm. and on the second uh, number they they said sports therapists, so many aliens uh, are more likely to hit 24-hour gyms than nightclubs. So we'll need professional trainers to crunch their course and sports therapists to ease strain, hammers and nutritionists
1: to Uh, advice on which protein shake are the best Mm. and number three artisans Uh, shoppers will pay extra for local authentic and specialist products and services that means artisans such as coffee roasters butchers barbers will help to revitalize your local high street i mean artisan bakers, yeah, <laughs> so forth. Uh, skilled tradespersons. Uh, automation will impact manual work jobs, but looking at how long it takes that Toyota robot <laughs> to pour a glass of juice and most probably shatter the glass <laughs> when it hands it to you, tradespeople are safe for now. The study shows that skilled tradespeople, such as joiners, glassmakers, and home decorators, will have work for at least the next ten years, and that's understandable because, like every home is different, you can't just paint like you do. And you know, I would, you know, yes, those skilled trades have yet to get under automation. Uh, Number five on the list is hospitality. And catering professionals, as, new, as people crave new dining and flavour experiences, the food and drinks industry will boom. Uh, chefs, bartenders and baristas tick the most in-demand skills for future employment with originality, flexibility and management skills. And this, to a certain extent, has been made possible by Brexit uh, because of lack of labour here. Uh, number six, engineers. See, <laughs> run a second career for you here, engineers. More and more people are moving to cities to work and live. To accommodate them, we'll need electrical engineers to wire our smart homes, civil engineers to design our roads, software engineers to connect streetlights to the internet, and environmental engineers to power them when oil runs out. <laughs> but it sells engineers with in-demand technological knowledge of the goods and their markets who will come out on top in the survey. So
0: now, uh, on the number seventh, health care professionals, as people you know live longer and will need doctors, nurses, and um, uh, therapists to look after us. But at, me- but as medicine and living condition improve, chances are we'll live over golden years in good health. Uh, Consul, uh, cons, consulartors will helps us learn, work, and uh, stay um, you know culturally aware in our 80s and 90s. And care workers will read up the uh, wearable technology to monitor heart rates, blood glucose levels, and sleep patterns. Veterinary nurses, it's an only number eight. So it's not all all, all about us. Um, so with 44% of UK households owing some uh, form of pet, it's uh, logical that we will need people to look after our, uh, you know, furry friends too. The skills of veterinary nurses will be in demand for at least the next 10 years. Then salespeople on the on the uh, on number nine. Salespeople have the originality, flexibility and management skills uh recruiters will look for in the future. And as urbanization continues and high street stores revive, shoppers will want to walk to actual real people. Bad news for self checkouts uh, boots. And uh Uh, On number tenth last, they have uh, put the creatives. uh, You know, a final shirt wearing creative are safe for now. And designers, marketers and writers will benefit from new digital technology and ease access to roles. They will get creative with roles too. Game designers, for example, have uh, systems skills to show uh, societies how to thrive with new technology. So these are the 10... Yeah, I suppose
1: in conclusion to this careers week or celebration of this careers week, you know, we should bear in mind the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings uh, of Allah be upon him. He said, By him in whose hand is my soul, if one of you were to carry a bundle of firewood on his back and sell it, that would be better for him than begging a man who may or may not give him anything. Mm -hmm. So... Anything that we do with our own hands to earn our own provision and to provide for ourselves is better than begging. We are very lucky that we live in this country which is constantly evolving and we have a lot of options in career fields. But we have to be careful in what fields we go into because it should be something that is beneficial not only to ourselves but but to our community and mankind as a whole. His Holiness uh, the head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mr. Masrur Ahmed, praises the British education system and reminds us that Amdi Muslim children living in the UK should be grateful for the vast opportunities they have. He said, do not waste these golden educational opportunities, but instead grasp them and seek to achieve excellence in your chosen fields of interest, whether it is science or any other subject. And I suppose, you know, looking at that list, mm-hmm. there's some things <clears> that I would not have put, especially number one teaching. <laughs> it's a difficult thing. <laughs> yeah, because it's very, very stressful. Yeah, I can stressful. see the others like sports therapists. Yeah, people are kind yeah. of like more interested in their bodies, uh, the artisans, skilled tradesmen, definitely hospitality. That's, you know, still you can't yes. automate that, right? You need someone to Catering take to me, your yeah. order. Right. You know, you. Put it this way. When you go to a restaurant and you get someone who's like, well, what do you want? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Mm. What do you feel about that experience? Mm. Uh, Oh, how are you? How is this evening? I can recommend you this. Mm. This is our daily specials. Mm. You feel much more. I mean, I I went and had a family gathering uh, on the weekend. Right. And just because of the waiter, because he was bubbly, he was really helpful. Right. It just added to the experience. experience yes. Yeah, it was just so and as a normal. human, we need you know human touch, not you
0: know self. I've seen some of the hotels that open open in Japan. They, mm. you know, just you can go there and you know uh, order there to the machines, and they just bring you the food yeah. through the remote. So I think as a human, we need uh, human human. You need
1: to have that interaction. Yes. But anyway.
0: But anyway, so with that, um, I would like to thank to my producers uh, Anna Mahmood and from technical team um, Tahir. Um, Ahmed and I would also like to thank my uh, ho- co-host uh, Talib Man. and with that stay tuned uh, to the voice of Islam take care Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh
2: Allah Allah, Allah. Allah.